uh, Romans 6 uh, in front of us this morning. If you weren't here last night, we're thinking about battling against sin, but thinking about some of the mindsets that we adopt that make us vulnerable to temptation. Last night we thought about despair, the effects of hopelessness, when it grips uh, a Christian's heart. And uh, this morning we want to think about a different one, and this is a mindset of indifference. Now, if I'm honest, uh, through a lot of my Christian life, I've not cared really that much about sin. I wouldn't say that my attitude was fundamentally rebellion in the sense that I was actively looking for commandments to break. It was more the fact that I just wasn't that bothered by my sin. Maybe you've experienced the same kind of situation where you're sitting there and, you know, there's some kind of trigger. I don't know what the the sinful uh, passion that maybe is uh, been real present in your heart is, but you're sitting there and maybe you're bored, maybe you're lonely, maybe you're angry, maybe you're stressed, maybe you're just tired, but you have that thought, I'd like to do X. Now, after just a few seconds, and after you kind of feel desire begin to flood into your heart, you then have a second thought. And this second thought is where you authorize yourself to go and do that sinful act. And what slips in with this second thought is some kind of lie. And let me just name some of the lies that lead or that come from the attitude of indifference. I mean, I almost hesitate to say these, but the truth is, they've come to my mind. I bet they've come to yours as well. You have that thought, well, my sin, it's already forgiven. So there's that sense that there's an open tab. I might as well just throw another sin on the account. Or maybe you have that thought, well, I know God, He's really, really merciful. He's gentle and lowly. He's not that bothered by this sin. Or you think of the behavior and you say, well, it's not a big sin. It's one of the smaller ones. I could do something that's so much worse. If this is the main sin I'm struggling with, well, it's not that big of a deal. That thought slips in, well, nobody's perfect in this life. Or maybe you have really what is an ugly attitude, but that thought, well, I can always repent afterwards. With all of these lies, what they really reveal is that the heart has come into this condition where it's indifferent about its sin. Now, my hope for us this morning is that when you come out, that your heart's not indifferent. That rather than there being an indifference, there's what we might call a zealous passion for chasteness before God. This desire that you actually have a pure heart that you want to preserve before Him. I've seen a lot of you know, emblems of Wesley. One of Charles Wesley's great hymns is about a heart that's really passionate for purity. Let me just read the beginning. It says, I want a principle within of jealous godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. I want the first approach to feel of pride or fond desire to catch the wondering of my will, to quench the kindling desire. That's what we want. And the question is, how do you go from this position of indifference, which is where no doubt many of us are, to recovering that longing to have a real purity of heart before God? Now, the verse I want us 
to really sit on this morning is verse 12 of Romans chapter 6. Let me just read it for us again. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And what I want us to do in order to really recover the truth that we need this morning, we're going to pick out some of the words that are so important in this verse. We're going to think about let, the significance of that word. We're going to think about that word reign, which is so important. We're going to think about the body. Why does he talk about the body in this verse? We're going to pick out that word obey and also this word passion. Each of these is fundamental to be able to understand what it looks like to really fight against the indifference, which is such a threat to our heart. And so let's just start with this word, let. He says, let not sin therefore reign. Now that word, let, it's so important. What's interesting, it's not actually in the Greek. It's implied within the Greek. That word, let, what it communicates is this is a third person imperative. This is a command that Paul is giving to us. And what's always important about any kind of command or that word let, what it signifies is he's targeting your will. Don't let this happen, is what he's saying. Now behind that directive is an astounding truth. This is part of what we talked about last night. What's so astounding is Paul is reminding us that the Christian actually has the power and the authority to say no to sin. The non-believer is not in that position. The non-believer, as he talks about throughout this chapter, is actually in the position of being a slave. But part of the challenge of the Christian, to go back to the image that's used so often, is having been liberated and emancipated from our slavery, the challenge now is to be able to look at the one who was formerly our master's sin and to actually say no in that moment of temptation. We have that capacity through the Holy Spirit. Now look at that word reign. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Again, this word reign, it's really important. If you just go back to the previous chapter, he's already used it in verse 21. He says, just as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness in the life of a believer. What Paul is reminding us of is in Christ, what's happened is that we have had a transfer of kingdom. Formerly, we were under the dominion of death Under what he calls law, we were in the grips of sin. We've been transferred out. Now, with Christ as our Lord, we're in his kingdom. Now, what's important, though, to realize in this verse is sin is not going to go down without a fight. And when he says, let not sin reign, what's implied within there is sin still wants to reign. And what you need to realize is in the Christian life, we shouldn't be surprised when it feels like we are in severe conflict against the gluttony, against the lust, against the anger, against the slothfulness, against the envy, against the vanity. All of these things want to sit on the throne that belongs to Jesus in your heart. 
And sometimes what you will find in the Christian life is it is going to feel like trench warfare. It will be like the battle of Psalm. When you just feel like it's a stalemate and it's going one inch, one inch at a time, one direction or the other. And it feels just like a heated contest of holding your ground. That's normal Christianity. Or, what you should also know is this suggests that you shouldn't be surprised where it feels a little bit like 9-11. You've been cruising along for a long time. Everything's had been, you know, relatively peaceful. Maybe there's a sinful passion you've not really struggled with for 30 years. And just as the planes come crashing into the Twin Towers for the first time, you're confronted with a sin that you thought was dead in your heart. That's what it looks like in this battle. That it's a constant contest not to let sin reign. But look at this next word, what he says. Again, it's really important. Let it reign in your mortal body. Now, the word body, body's got a really significant place in Paul's theology. It's something that most of us haven't thought much about. What you see throughout, really, Romans and elsewhere in Paul's writing, it's important to know the body is not evil. There are certain strands of Christianity that have gotten that wrong. The body is not evil. It's good. It's created by God. But here's what you need to know about your body. It's weak. It's susceptible to what Paul calls the flesh elsewhere. Let me just pick out a couple of other verses a little bit later on where he talks about the body. Chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You can go down to chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the what? The deeds of the body, you will live. A lot of us think that it's okay just to be undisciplined with our body. That's not Paul's approach. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says he disciplines his body and he brings it into subjection. If you want a picture to illustrate this, it's kind of like Paul's, in his framework, the body, naturally, it's like a Mustang. It's a wild horse. It's really unruly. We have a whole history of the flesh ruling over the body, and it's resulted in all kinds of sinful habits. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes in our life, what should be happening is that Mustang's becoming a war horse. It's able to be dominated by a different power, namely the Holy Spirit. But what you need to see is this body is a theater of warfare. That there really is a contest between all of the sinful passions that want your heart and to dominate your behavior and the fruit that the Spirit wants to bear in and through the body. Now, let's take out another word. Again, this verse is so important to laying the groundwork for battling against indifference. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey it, its passions. And we've got to think about that word passions. Because what Paul is identifying here, we're, we're drilling down into what is the deepest difficulty 
when we're talking about fighting against sin. And the deepest difficulty is that within our heart, our love is fundamentally misdirected. That really the deep warfare of the Christian life is a battle against sinful passions, which is to say that we live wrongly because we love wrongly. And what you need to know about your sinful love or your sinful passion is it's always built on a vision that's skewed. In other words, you love wrongly because you see wrongly. It's the old problem that Eve encountered, that she saw the forbidden fruit and it actually looked good. She saw wrongly, and then she desired wrongly, and then she acted wrongly. And what you're always going to find with those sins that are most deeply entrenched in your life is beneath all of it is a skewed vision where it actually looks Good, it actually looks life-giving. And the deepest challenge that we have in terms of our sanctification is how do we actually change our vision so we can see darkness for its darkness and we can see light for its light? We're going to have to take up that question in just a second. But the last word I just want to pull out so you can really see its importance is this word, obey. Let not sin win in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is really countercultural right here. Because the advice that we get repeatedly in the world today, through kind of popular psychology, is act on your impulses. Drill down, discover the deep passion that you have, let that direct your life. That passion within you, this is the road you need to follow for self-fulfillment. And the Christian understanding is fundamentally opposed to that attitude. What we see is that actually you've got to filter your passions. Because even in the heart of a Christian, there are a lot of passions that if you let them have their way, they would lead you to death, they lead you to hell. They actually have to say no. Remember what Peter says. Abstain from the passions of your heart which wage war against your soul. You've got to filter. You've got to say no. And this is really, really difficult when fundamentally deep down you've got some desire, things that you still see as good that are actually evil, things that you long because you think they give you life when actually they produce death in you. Now, how do we pull this together to move on? What I want you to see from this verse is that indifference, the mindset of indifference regarding sin, is always a symptom of idolatry. That when you don't really care about your sin, it's because something has sat on the throne that Jesus belongs on. Or to put it a different way, the opposite of love is not hatred. Hatred and love have actually a lot in common. They're both passionate about something. The opposite of love is indifference. It's just not caring. And when you have an indifferent attitude towards sin, it actually shows 
that your love has been directed to something other than the Lord Jesus himself. And this is where we can take a question, we can agitate a question. This is a question, if you've not thought much about it, you need to think about it. Because it's so important to everyday Christianity. What do we do when there is an idol sitting on the throne of Jesus on our heart? The symptom is indifference. The symptom are these sinful passions. What do we do in these circumstances? And friends, there is nothing extreme about this. It's a little bit like, if you can think back you know, to all of the crusades, and it's like, who's got Jerusalem? Sometimes it's the Christians. Sometimes it's the Muslims. There's this constant war in our heart. And you can feel there's moments where the wrong person is sitting on the throne. And what do you do in those moments where your heart loves wrongly? Let's look at several things from this chapter that we need to remember. Things that will help us redirect our love. Let's start here. Is that we need to be jolted by God's hatred of sin. I mentioned last night Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist. And part of his life stories, he had that moment where he had a death sentence and he spent a whole night knowing the day he was going to be before a firing squad. And he and a few of his uh, compatriots, you know, they stood and they watched the firing squad line up and then at the last second they found out that actually there had been a reprieve. The sentence had been changed by the czar. Now what we need to think of as Christians is we're not in that position where we, in a sense, had this sentence of death that God was going to judge sin, and then at the last minute He decided to take away the penalty. What you need to think about is what would it be like to have that sentence of death knowing that this is God's view of sin, the wages of sin is death, to feel the guilt, to know that you're facing an eternal death as a penalty of your sin, to spend that time agonizing over that penalty... And then right at that moment where you can see the firing squad, it's not that the gun never fires, it's that somebody steps out and they take the bullet for you. And as you watch them bleed to death on the ground, you realize that is God's attitude towards sin. He hates it. It's so opposed to His nature, He can't not judge it. And He did judge it. And this is why part of Paul's Teaching when it comes to putting to death the earthly members. This is Colossians 3.5. He tells us to remember that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There is something, it's not the most important aspect, but there is something that when we actually have a sinful passion that we are obeying, to actually take it and to think about God's view of that sin and to recover something of a holy fear of what that sin would mean if it was truly your Lord and Master. Got to be jolted by God's hatred of sin in order to take the shine away from sin. But here's something else. When we really have a kind of dominant evil passion in our heart is that it's not altogether different, but it's coming from a different angle, is it's important to actually meditate on the danger of that sin in your heart. I want to think of Eve. I want to go back to Eve. What would it be like to be Eve to see the forbidden fruit, 
to make it looks good to take it, later on to then be cast out of the Garden of Eden in a place of exile. What if she could have rewound the tape and gone back and seen the forbidden fruit again? And really understood the danger of what happens if you take of that sin? Would her perspective not have been different? Well, let's change the scene. I want you to imagine somebody who spent their whole life smoking. And the more they smoke, the more they're unable to breathe in oxygen. And slowly, you know, they, they can't breathe. Finally, they, you know, they suffer some kind of emphysema. They more or less suffocate because of this habit of smoking their whole life. What would it be like to experience the death that comes through smoking? If all of a sudden they were somehow resurrected, they were given new life. And they weren't just given new life, they were given a new set of lungs. And can you imagine if they could breathe in a full breath of oxygen again, how good it would feel. And the most illogical thing that would ever happen is for that person in that moment to all of a sudden look around and ask if anybody's got a cigarette in the room. Because they really miss smoking. Part of what we need to do with sinful passions is we need to see the danger that if you let these into your life, where they want to take you is a place of bondage, a place of pain. That when Paul at the end of this chapter says the wages of sin are death, it's true. They really do reap death in our life. And that leads to another point, and it's, again, somewhat similar to what I've said already. That when we have this passion and it looks so wonderful and life-giving and we thought about God's hatred of it, we thought about the danger of it, we also just need to think of the intrinsic pain of that sinful passion. One of the myths of the world is that Sin actually brings joy. Sin brings very fleeting joy. Let me just give you some sinful passions, and I want you to ask the question, if any of these sinful passions took hold of your your heart, if you really fell into a condition where any of these passions was the dominant passion of your life, you ask yourself the question, are you happy, are you free, or are you miserable? Let's start with anger. If anger really took hold of your heart, if it really controlled how you viewed other people, do you think that the more anger that's in your heart that you get more freedom and happiness? I don't think anybody would say that. It reaps misery. Let's take greed. You know, you think money's going to bring satisfaction. Do you really think that if you had all that that greedy heart would want such that you prioritized things over people because that's what greed always does. That after 20 or 30 years of giving yourself to greed, so you've got the big house, you've got the garage with all the cars, you've got the bank accounts, but you've got no (laughs) friends. Oh, you've got people that know you because you've got assets that they want, but nobody likes you. Because who likes to be around a greedy person that loves things more than people? The more greed that's in your life, is that going to produce happiness? Is that going to produce any kind of joy? Just pick up another random one. Again, you take lust. What would happen? 
If lust really dominated your heart so that your attitude was reducing people constantly to their sexual value, if that sinful passion took hold and did everything that it wants to do with you, so it ruined your marriage, your kids hate you because of all the choices you've made, You've hurt endless people. You've lost the capacity to love because love is built on a preservation of the dignity of other people. It's opposed to lust fundamentally. You follow that path down lust. Does it give you satisfaction? Or do you feel like you're in a miry pit of absolute misery? When we really feel these sinful passions taking over our heart and they look so appealing, part of what we need to do is to meditate on the intrinsic painfulness of sin. Yeah, it might give you a fix in a moment. But its wages, as I said before, are always going to be death in the end. But friends, we've got to get beyond the negative. It's not just a matter of thinking of God's hatred. It's not just a matter of thinking of the danger of sin or the intrinsic pain of sin. We actually need to move to the positive picture. That when you want these passions dethroned in your life, what we also need to recover is the joy of being raised with the Lord Jesus Christ to have better things to live for. Plato had that allegory of the cave. You know, it starts out with that person, you know, they're in the dark cave. All they can see is the shadows. Everybody's in bondage. He doesn't tell us how, but somehow one of these people, you know, they break free of the fetters. They find their way out of the cave. For the first time, they look around and they see trees and they see flowers and they see the river and they see the sky. And then they look up and they see the sun. Now, he was using that allegory for a different purpose. But it's a great image. Anybody who's left the cave in the shadows, in the darkness, and found their way up to the air and the beauty and the goodness of the real world, nobody wants to go back to the cave that they've come out of. And part of what we need as Christians, and this is just embedded in this whole text, Thomas Chalmers, he talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. I think for a modern age, we need to talk about the compelling power of a better vision. That when you behold something that is incomparably better than what sin can offer, it compels you in the direction of holiness. And that's why Paul, you know, he talks about verse 21. What fruit did you have From the things of which you're now ashamed, the end of those things is death. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. That ultimately needs to drive us forward. It's not just the pain of sin. It's the pleasure of righteousness. Isaac Watts, he's got a great old hymn. He's got this wonderful stanza. The sorrows of the mind be banished from this place. Religion never was designed to make our pleasures less. And as we taste of the goodness of what God has in store, we see who wants that sinful passion when there are godly passions that can drive our heart. But what if even that's not enough? 
What if you're in that moment where you know in your head that the things of God are better, but your heart is still beating to the sound of whatever that old passion is? What do we do then? Friends, this is where we need to recognize that Jesus, He has grace for us in our hour of need. That in those moments where you feel the warfare, remember that moment, there's the trigger, you have the first thought, I should sin. Now, if you get to that second thought where you start listening to all of these lies, you've already lost the battle. But in that moment where you begin to feel the sin passions surface in your heart, that's the moment where you cry out to the Lord Jesus and you ask Him for deliverance. Because we're talking about a Savior who is actually at God's right hand in heaven. Who actually has power and authority to liberate us from those passions that on their own are too strong for our hearts. One of the things I love about the Narnia books is, you know, each of these children, they've got a different uh, gift from Aslan. And Susan's gift is Susan's horn. And the promise is that when she blasts the horn, that Aslan, that help will come. Now the funny thing is, if you read, for example, Prince Caspian, she blasts the horn, and Aslan doesn't jump immediately out of the cupboard. Nothing visibly changes. But guess what? Things do change. Help is on the way. And so in those moments where you feel that raging passion, you cry out to the Lord Jesus. And you trust that His grace, His help is on the way. And then as those lies begin to surface, because they will come, then you go to combat with them. As soon as you hear that little voice whispering in your ear that your sin is already forgiven, you recognize the hatred of any heart that would trample on the blood of Jesus in that way. And you call that lie evil for what it is. As soon as you hear that little voice whispering in your ear, that sin is not that big of a deal. You detect the lie. I'm reading a book about the English Reformation right now. London, there was a time where you could see limbs of people's bodies throughout the city as a sign of the danger of certain behavior. And you remember that the body of your Lord and Savior Jesus was crucified for the least of what we consider a sin. And you remind yourself that there is no such thing as a small sin in the eyes of God. And as soon as you hear that little voice whisper in your ear, you can always repent afterwards. You remind yourself that repentance may be free, but repentance is not necessarily easy. And that our heart, it's almost like a quick-drying cement And what happens is we begin to willfully sin is our heart begins to grow hard. And when the heart grows hard, the only way God can break it is to bring the hammer and to break it. And He will do that if He needs to in our life. 
But for anyone who doesn't want to go there, for anyone who wants to embrace the love, the mercy, the grace of God, when you hear that voice say, repent after, you recognize, no, that that's not the attitude of a disciple of the Lord Jesus. That the grace that saves us is a grace that we treasure. And in that moment again, ask the Lord, let me just go back to the hymn that we began with, that He would give you a principle within of jealous, godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. And just to move on with that hymn, that I from Thee no no more Thy goodness grieve, the filial awe, the fleshly heart, the tender conscience give. Where we want to go with this battle against sin is where our heart is not hard, but it's tender, it's sensitive. And where rather than falling into that ditch, where yes, in His grace, the Lord can lift us out, that we're willing to resist, we're willing to preserve our heart, And when we recognize the purity of heart, this is the condition through which we see God. And if we have that belief that the more pure our heart is, the more of His glory we will see. Friends, that will be a strong motive to resist temptation in those hours which truly do feel like spiritual combat. Let's just respond to this word. Let's ask God for the grace to confess our sin, to say no to our sin, and to grow in righteousness. Father, so often we admit that uh, worship, it feels safe. There's a kind of pretentiousness to worship, of which we uh, act better than we are. We dress better than the condition of our soul. Yet you see it all. You see that none of this is exaggerated. There is a real spiritual combat this last week. Many of us have tapped out in moments of temptation and given in to sin. Father, we pray that you'd give us a holy discontent with that attitude of indifference. And that rather than indifference, that we'd be driven by a kind of spiritual love that would make us want to be chaste and pure. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that there is cleansing for our sin when we confess it to you. But Lord, might you take away the love of sinning. Might you change our vision such that we see sin for what it is. And help us to recognize the freedom that we have to say no and to no longer let sin reign in our mortal bodies to obey it in its lust. Help us to grow in such freedom, which is to grow in godliness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.